Welcome. Glad to have you joining us again today. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church. And if you've been with us uh, for a while, uh, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Nula and I and my family, we had the, the chance to go on a holiday of a lifetime. Uh, my wife, Nula, when I met her 20 years ago, I said, Nula, what, that, that's, that's, an, that's an interesting name. She said, it's a Greek name. Turns out that I married into this beautiful Greek family. And for 20 years, we have wanted to go to Greece and to just uh, see where her parents are from and, and just sort of that cultural background. And so the last couple of weeks, we had the chance to go. And it was fabulous. And we had such a good time. We, uh, we saw beautiful beaches, uh, cute little Greek towns, ancient ruins, amazing waterfalls. It was incredible. We just, I mean, we just took it all in. It was, it was really the, the holiday of a lifetime. And, and, uh, and what I discovered uh, when I was in Greece is that I think that I am Greek. You know what I, what I found is Greeks sleep till about 10 in the morning, which would be perfect for me. And, and then they have this, for breakfast, they have a little bit of coffee and pastry, which I can't think of a better breakfast. And then they, they, they go until lunch about two in the afternoon, they have lunch, and then they have a nap, which sounds pretty good too. And, and then they eat supper at around eight or nine at night outside in these uh, little tavernas in the streets with, with their friends and family, and it's just full of life. And man, it was it was great. And then they stay up late. I'm like, secretly, I think I'm Greek. And I loved it. It was a joy to be there. Uh, but I also have to tell you that when we pulled back into Maple Ridge, we drove down the road to our house. And when we, when we drove in here, we're just so happy to be back again. We love this place. We love the people here, family and friends. And of course, we love being part of, of Ridge Church and what God's doing here. And so it's, it's a pleasure to be back again and, and be with you. Uh, we're going to start today a new series uh, on the book of Leviticus. And some of you are probably already saying, Leviticus, really? Yeah, Leviticus, really? Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, it is the third book in the Old Testament, the third book in the Bible. And, and the first one is the book of Genesis, which is all about beginnings, the, the beginning of creation of the universe, and then, and then the beginning of the nations, and then the beginning of the people of Israel. And the second book, Exodus, is all about the exit of the, of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's, it's really about the birth of the nation of Israel. And then, of course, the third book that we come to in the Bible is the, the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're, if you're new to sort of exploring the Christian faith, the Bible, you know, the natural place to start is at the beginning. And so people often start with Genesis. And there's these amazing stories of God and what he's like and what he's doing and, and, and this family that becomes the Jewish people. And, and then they come to the first part of Exodus and these incredible stories of Pharaoh and Moses and the, the plagues and crossing the Red Sea and it's incredible. And, and then the second part of Exodus begins to slow down a little bit, a lot more about sort of the, the tabernacle, the temple and, and that kind of thing. But, but then they hit Leviticus. And it's like this abrupt change. Instead of these sort of amazing stories, there's these long Long, seemingly kind of dry, disconnected instructions about, yeah, about everything, about sacrifices and about festivals and, and priestly garments and, and skin diseases and mold growing on walls and, and, and what to do about the poor. I mean, it's just it's such an abrupt change that many people, when they get there, they just kind of, they just kind of drop. they like, what happened? I don't know what this is. I don't know what it, how it applies to me. I don't know why I should be reading this. And... and too often people stop there. Others say, well, I've read ahead. I know that, that when Jesus comes, we're no longer under the law. So why is it that we should 
Read the book of Leviticus. Why should we be aware of this? Because that doesn't apply to us anymore. And, and many people get stopped when they come here. My, my professor in Bible college, he was just a short firebrand of a Scottish guy. You did not want to cross him, but he was a brilliant professor and teacher. And in this Scottish brogue, he used to always say to us, beware of Leviticus because it can trip you up. So this is what we want to talk about. Why, why Leviticus? What is the value of us today in, in 2022 of studying and learning and understanding what the book of Leviticus is all about? Well, here's the first reason. Because Leviticus is foundational to the Christian faith. You cannot fully understand who Jesus is and, and what he did and why he did it without the book of Leviticus. In fact, one of the theologians, a guy with the last name Ross, writes that Leviticus was and is one of the most important books in the entire Old Testament. It not only lays out the entire religious system of ancient Israel, but it also lays the theological foundation for the New Testament. You see, you can't understand what the, the New Testament is talking about in terms of sacrifices unless you've read and understand the book of Leviticus. You can't fully grasp what the, what the atonement is. The, this is the central act that Jesus did on the cross when he died on the cross. You can't understand the full meaning of that unless you understand and unless you have the foundations that come from the book of Leviticus. When it comes to the whole idea of being pure and holy, being set apart, this flows out of the writings that we find in the, in the book of Leviticus. And how about these words? You should love your neighbor as yourself. I mean... Who, who said that? You, we'd say, well, of course, Jesus said that. But where does Jesus get those words? Turns out that Jesus got those words from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On top of that, if you want to read and understand the book of Romans or, or the book of Hebrews, a lot of the imagery, a lot of the pictures, a lot of the, 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 the illusions that the, the, the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews make are, are based upon the law upon what, what Leviticus teaches us. And, and all of those, uh, those ideas, the, the sacrifices that point to their fulfillment in Jesus, the, the, the purification, the outward purification that signifies the inward cleansing that we experience in Christ, all of that flows from the book of Leviticus. But it's not just the theologians that talk about the importance of Leviticus. Apostle Paul himself. Listen, listen to what he has to say about it. He's, he's writing to the church in Galatia and he's writing about the law, which is primarily the book of Leviticus as well as another book in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. He's writing about primarily this book that we're going to look at, Leviticus, the law. And, and he's writing, and this is what he says to the church, uh, to the Christians there. He says this, so the law was our guardian until Christ came. In other words, he says, the law had great value for us until Christ came because what it did was it was our guardian. Now, you know what a guardian does. A guardian is the legal protector and the one who raises as someone who is young until they're the age of maturity, until they're old enough to be on their own. And that's what Paul says the law was. And he goes on, in the ancient world, the idea of a guardian also had the idea of a tutor. In other words, the, the law tutors us. It teaches us so that we can understand what God is about until Christ came. In fact, in another uh, place, 
uh, it's translated this way. It says this, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Uh, the, the, the law, again, is the book of Leviticus, written in parts that we would know Christ. Now think about that. That's how important the book of Leviticus is. And he goes on to say at the end of that verse, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So he goes on to explain that we don't have to live now under the, the rules that were set out in the book of Leviticus. But nevertheless, the, if we want to grasp the breadth and the depth and, and the fullness and, and the meaning of what Christ has done, if, if we want to understand our faith in color instead of just black and white, then there is great value in understanding the law, at least at, at a basic level. He goes on in, in Romans chapter 10, he says this, for Christ is the end of the law. Now that word end there means the culmination, the, 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 the destination. Like we say, when a train has come to the end of the line, it has arrived at the place that it was always meant to, to go to. And he says the same about the law. He says the law is there as this, this journey that leads us to and ultimately points us to Christ. In fact, Jesus himself speaks about this. He, he found himself one day in an argument with the, the religious leaders of the day and they were throwing the Bible verses around and, and, and you know, talking about the law and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus, Jesus said, well, you know, you study all of that stuff, but, but you're missing that it's about me. He, he says this. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. He's speaking about Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and some of the other Old Testament books. So the first reason why there's great value in us studying the book of Leviticus is because it is utterly foundational for understanding who Jesus is. And that applies both to you if you've been following Jesus for years and years and years, or if you are not even yet a follower of Jesus, but you're just kind of trying to check this whole thing out and see what it's all about. The law, the book of Leviticus, is very helpful in understanding what our faith is all about. That's the first reason. Here's the second reason. We should study Leviticus because it is the very words of God. And because they are the very words of God, they, they, they reveal themselves to us about who God is and what He is like and, and how we should relate to Him. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 is the third book in the Old Testament. Verse 1, this is how the book of, Le Sorry, this is how the book of Leviticus begins. It says this, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting saying, and then it goes on to say what God said. In Hebrew, the, the very first word of this sentence is a Hebrew word, vaikra. And it's one word that, that really is translated in English, three words. It means, and he called. Or if you were to kind of give it its fuller meaning, the, the, the opening phrase is this, and, and he, the Lord, called to Moses saying, in other words, what comes next in this book are the very words of God himself. Which means that they tell us a great deal about who God is. It, over and over in the book of Leviticus, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses. So what we're going to study in this study is the very words of God himself. So, words of God, what are they about? What? What's the big idea? What is it that God is trying to communicate in this book of laws, in this book of Leviticus that we have? 
Well, to understand that, you have to go back to the very first word in Hebrew of this book. It's the word and. And, of course, is a, is a, is a connecting word, right? I mean, love and marriage, horse and carriage, or in the famous words of Dr. Seuss, green eggs and ham, right? I mean, it connects things together. And the book of Leviticus begins with the word and, meaning that it is connected to what has come before it. Meaning that when we begin reading the book of Leviticus, we're sort of starting halfway through. We're, we're joining a conversation that's already in place. It's like starting on season two of a series. It's great, but, but you have to understand season one if you want to fully grasp what season two is all about. And the end that begins the book of Leviticus ties it to the book that's before it, the book of Exodus. And so if you want to understand what Leviticus is about, it's important to take a, a, a few moments to get a brief overview of what Exodus is about because it gives context to all of Leviticus. Exodus, if you, if you remember, we studied it last fall if you were here. Exodus begins with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And interestingly enough, in chapter 1, God is pretty much absent from the scene. And instead, the, the people of Israel find themselves in this slavery to this cruel and wicked king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and they're building his storehouses. In other words, they're in the process of, of using their sweat and their tears and their heartache and their, their poverty and their misery to make Pharaoh greater and wealthier and more, live in a more luxurious lifestyle. And really what they're experiencing is a profound inequality, a, a, a wickedness in the way that they, their world is ordered. In fact, when you read chapter 1, it says that Pharaoh used them, that, that he treated them, he, he worked them ruthlessly. Now, if you think about it, you use an object or a, maybe an animal or a, a tool or a product, but you don't use people. And yet that's what was happening in Egypt. Pharaoh was using people to make himself rich and powerful and greater at their expense. And you know, this is how Egypt is. This is how Egypt is ordered. There is a certain order in Egypt. There are those who are on top and there are those who are on bottom. There are those who are free and there are those who are slaves. There are those who are using and those who are being used. And for the Israelites, there was no way to get out of this because they were enslaved. It was just the, the way that Egypt was. They lived under it for 400 years and it just looked like it was going to go on and on forever. But then when you get to chapter 2, then the Israelites, in their, in their misery and their pain, they cried out to God. And it says that God heard their cry and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the gods of Egypt... They were good with the way that Egypt was ordered. They had no problem with all of that, but, but not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, not Yahweh, the, the God of all creation. He was a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, of the brokenhearted, of those in deep need. And this, is a, this was a revolutionary idea, that God would care about the downtrodden, that God would care about those who were enslaved, that God would care about the brokenhearted. And God, unlike the, the gods of Egypt, is not good with the way that Egypt is ordered. And so he comes and he raises up, he raises up Moses and sends him to see Pharaoh and, and he sends the plagues on the land. And the, the plagues on the land really are a conflict between God, Yahweh, and these, 
sort of small-time so-called gods of Egypt. And, and one by one in these plagues, he demonstrates that those gods are nothing, that they're, that they're powerless before him. And then he sets the people of Israel free. And he leads them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they have this incredible worship service, this, this time of praise to God. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai. That's kind of the first half of the book of Exodus. But, but in the second half, then God makes a covenant with the people of Israel. And then he goes on to explain to them how to build a tabernacle for him, which then leads to the book of, of, of Leviticus. So let's talk about those things. First of all, the covenant that God makes. Here, here's the covenant that God makes with his people in Exodus chapter 19. He says this, to, to the people of Israel. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's fascinating, this covenant that he makes. He says to the people of Israel, look, if you obey the, the laws that I'm going to give you, if you're obedient to what I call you to, you will be my treasured possession, my, my people, my special people. And here's what I'll do. I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now that's what Leviticus is all about, defining what it means to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, what is a priest? A priest is someone who mediates God to, to people, right? I mean, so what, what God is asking here of the people of, of Israel, what he's expecting of them is that they will, they will show the world what God is like and how it is that he wants to order the world. God's purpose is for them to show the world what it looks like to leave slavery and to live in true freedom. And he wants them to show the world how the world can be ordered the way that God designed it to be. Things like freedom and love and righteousness and justice and equality. I mean, these kinds of things, they're incredible ideas, but that's all they are until they take on flesh and blood until they're actually lived out in somebody's life. And God says to the people of Israel, I want you to live this out. I want you to be the kind of people. I want to order your life, not according to the way of Egypt, where people are used and use others, where there's top and bottom, where there's, where there's slave and free, but I want to order it in a way it's about love and righteousness and peace and joy and all of those kinds of things. See, God, God says to them, to the people of Israel, you are to be different. You're to show the world a new and a different way of being human. You're to be in this nation of priests that have been set free to show the world how to order it. Now, of course, if you read the, the history of the people of Israel, they didn't always get it right, but that's always been God's intention for his people. It's still God's intention for his people. Listen to what the apostle Peter said. Writes. He's writing to the church, to, to us. He's, here's what he says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you hear that? Peter literally, I mean, he basically almost word for word takes the same covenant that God made with the people of Israel in, in, in Exodus and he applies it to us. God's God's possession, his own possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Why? So that we may declare the, the marvelous excellencies of him to the, to the world around us. Peter applies 
that covenant to us. See, the problem is that too often, especially in North America, North America, Christians in North America have such a small view of their faith. that They see their faith too often as being about a, a personal relationship between me and Jesus, and he set me free from my sins so that I could go to heaven and be with him and, and that he could help me in this life to be the fullest me that I could be. And they come to church once in a while to kind of get a shot of encouragement and just a reminder and to kind of get the strength to kind of keep going so that they can be who God created them to be in their little world. And in one sense, that's true. But in another sense, it's such a tiny vision of what God calls his people to be. Because, because the call is that we would be much more than that, that we would be this people together that, that are this royal priesthood that mediate God to the world around us. See, what God is calling his church to, what he calls us to, is to demonstrate to the world a different way to be human, to, to, a, a different way to order the world. You know, in Egypt, the Israelites were owned by Pharaoh. But when they got to the wilderness, I mean, who, who, who owned them there? Well, God, God paid for their freedom. God, God delivered them. And the same is, for you and I, I mean, we, we were in slavery and bondage to sin until through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, we were set free. Why? Why? So that we could be just about us and we would kind of wander around in the wilderness with our freedom and do our thing. No, no, no. Because he has this plan and, and this purpose for us that we might show the world a different way to live. You know, your, your joy, your, your, your healing, the freedoms in your life, the, the blessings that you have, the, the, pa the passions and the desires and the money and the talent, all of those things that God has given you, is it just for you? Is it just so that you can kind of enjoy the freedom that you have because of Jesus? Or is it so that you'll be a channel for God to flow through you into the world around you? Because that's his desire. That, that's his calling upon us. Your life by God's design, will be the most full, the most meaningful, the most, uh, excuse me, the most beautiful life that you can live when you live it fully before Jesus in such a way that, that God's life, the, the life of Jesus flows through you into the world around you in all of the various places that you live. See, this is what it means to be holy. Holy just means to be set apart. You know, holy doesn't mean some sort of, you know, self-righteous, better-than-thou kind of attitude. People think that, or sometimes they think that holy means to be wearing, you know, robes and talking with fancy theological language and, you know, religious ceremonies. That's not what holy means. Here's a definition of holy. Holy means to live in such a way that when others see your life, they catch a glimpse of the living God. And, and how it is that he wants to offer freedom in their life so they can live in a way that honors him. That's what it means to be holy. And that's what we're called to as the people of God. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Leviticus, I mean, the question for Leviticus is this, how do you shape a new kind of people? How do you create a new kind of humanity? Because if you want to reteach, if, if you want to... The, the people around you to relearn how to live in a world that is ordered differently than Egypt, then you need to have a people that will show the way, people that will live it out, that others can look and say, oh, that's what it looks like. 
Oh, that's what it could be like. Oh, that's what true freedom is all about. That's, that's what Leviticus is all about. You have to understand that the people of Israel were slaves for 400 years. So they didn't know how to live with freedom. They, they didn't understand what, how to relate to one another other than the way that they had related in Egypt. And so Leviticus begins to set out for them how that looks. And it's very intentional and very specific. And that's by design. I mean, think about this. If your world, if your world is in chaos, if it's, if it's, if it's broken or fragmented and all kinds of trouble in your world, what you need in your world is not someone to say, well, try to figure it out all the best. No, no, you need someone who gives you order in your world, helps you bring a new, a new ordering to your world, right? I mean, you know, if an addict were to check themselves into a, into a recovery place, they don't say, well, you know, there's your room, pick whatever bed you want, go to bed when you want, see you sometime tomorrow for breakfast, and just kind of hang out until you feel like you're kind of feeling a little better. That's not how it works, right? You say, this is your room, this is your bed, lights out at this time. You need to get up at this time and spend the first half an hour writing in your gratitude journal. Then we're going to have breakfast from this time to this time. Then we're going to serve and clean up the place. Then we're going to have, from this time to this time, we're going to have group therapy. After that, we're going to have one-on-one -on -one time. Then we're going to have lunch. And it goes like that all through the day. Why? Because they want to be controlling? No, no, no. Because they need order in their life. Because that's how they, they learn a new way to live, a new way to think. That's what brings freedom into their life. The same is true with the book of of Leviticus. It's God's very intentional way. It's his, his, his plans and his purposes for how to teach the Israelites how to live and order their lives in a new way. That's why when you read it, it seems very narrow. It seems like, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Of course it is, because God is in the process of creating this new people with this new way to, to be human and this new way to order the world. So it's going to have all those things. So when you read Leviticus, it isn't this sort of random set of weird old rules. No, no. The question is this. How do you order the world? That's what it's all about. Now, of course, we're no longer under the law. We live by the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. But that doesn't mean that the principles of, of, of holiness and this understanding of how God wants to order the world doesn't still have incredible meaning in our world around us. And that's one of the reasons why there's value in us studying this book. That's the covenant that God makes with his people. It's a call on our lives. But then Exodus doesn't just end with that covenant. It, it goes on from, you know, after that for the next almost 20 chapters to lay out in very explicit detail how God wants Moses and the people of Israel to build for him a tabernacle, a Tent of meeting, kind of a, a movable temple for him to, to dwell in. Now, God does this because he wants to dwell in the midst of his people. You know, Exodus begins with the absence of God from his people and from them in slavery. But it ends with the people of God free and with God himself dwelling in their very midst. In fact, just before the very first word of Leviticus, this is how the book of Exodus ends. Exodus chapter 40, beginning in verse 34. As soon as Moses had put the final touch on the tabernacle, this is what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God now comes and he dwells among his people. But this is no ordinary God. This is no sort of flimsy, two-bit, you know, selfish, temptuous little God of the ancients. No, 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 no. This is, this is the God of all creation. This is the God who spoke a word and the universe came into existence. This is the God who is sovereign over all of human history and who grants every breath to every living creature at every moment of their life until he chooses to no longer grant them life. I mean, this is the God who sits enthroned in heaven, circled and surrounded by hundreds of millions of, 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 of angels and, and by the saints who, who fall down and worship him day and night, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And now this God comes and he dwells in the very presence of his people, Israel. Which raises a really important question. How do you live in the presence of that kind of a holy God? How do you worship that God? But more than worship that God, I mean, he's right there. How do you go about your daily life with the presence of God right there among you? How do you interact with the people around you? How do you live your life? This is what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus knows nothing about, about uh, knows nothing that is beyond God's control or concern. That's why throughout the book of Leviticus, over and over, God says, I am the Lord, your God. And he reminds them and he teaches them that, that every aspect of their life, their faith, of course, but also their sex life and their work and their relationship with their neighbors and how they care for their bodies and how they care for the things in their world and how they care for the poor. I mean, every aspect of their life and all of their life is to be lived in light of the fact that they live in the presence of the living, holy God. But as tangible as that presence was for the people of Israel, the fact of the matter is God's presence among us is even now is even greater than it was then. The Apostle John, speaking about Jesus, says this at the beginning of his gospel. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That word dwelt, literally in Greek, it means tabernacled. Uh, John is looking back to this very, very verses we're looking at at the end of Exodus, where God came and literally dwelt among his people. He says, now God came and dwelt not as a, a pillar of smoke or a cloud of smoke or a pillar of fire. Now he literally came and dwelt among us in flesh and blood. Like one of us, he said, we saw him right there and we saw the glory of God. He dwelt in our midst. And more than that, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostle Paul writes this to the church. And, and by the way, if you were here last week, this was the, the verse that uh, Pastor Art Birch spoke to us about. But he, here it is again. He says this, speaking to the church, do you, plural, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You, us, the, the church 
is the temple of the living God. Think about that for a moment. That, that means that, that God dwells in our presence. The God to whom millions of angels bow in worship dwells among us. When we meet together on a Sunday morning, he's here. When, when you meet with your community group to, to study and to pray and to, to walk through life together, God himself dwells right there in your midst. When you put your shoulder to shoulder, to shoulder with someone to serve the needs of the people in our city or in your neighborhood, God is present right there with you. Think about that. What, what does that mean then about how we act as a, as, a, as a church? What does that mean about how we act when we have conflict with one another? What does that mean about how we live together in community with one another? What does it mean for us that God is in our presence right now even as we speak? But the Apostle Paul, actually a few verses later in, in the same letter to the Corinthians, takes it one step further. Here's what he writes. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Apostle Paul teaches that God not only dwells among us, but literally that he dwells by the power of the Holy Spirit in your physical body. Think about that. Think about what that means. I mean, that, 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 that means that what you do with your body, how you treat it, how you think about it, what you do sexually with your body, how you care for it, all of that is incredibly important because your body is the, is the temple of God himself. I mean, you talk about living in the presence of God. Every place that you go, you are in the presence of God. Leviticus guides the people of Israel in what it means to live in the presence of God. Now, of course, we don't live under those same rules, but the fact of the matter is it teaches us a great deal about how to live in the presence of a holy, awesome, incredible God. Why Leviticus? Because God is holy, and therefore He calls us to be holy. That's why we call this series Sanctus. Sanctus is simply the Latin word for holy. And... Um, and, uh, and uh, at the very heart of Leviticus is this call for us to be holy because God himself is holy. In fact, a number of times all through Leviticus, it comes up like this. Here's, here's what he says. God says, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate or set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy for I am holy. And again, the apostle Peter picks up on this and writes this to the church uh, uh, who is living in a time when the church was under a lot of pressure from the culture around us. Probably more than our day, but nevertheless, not unlike our day. And here's what he writes to the church. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your former way of life. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is where we're going in this series. We, we are going to prepare our minds for action. This is what we're going to talk about is not some theory, some sort of history lesson from thousands of years ago. This is about how it is that we prepare ourselves to live in this world, in this day, in the culture that we find ourselves in. 
He says, prepare your minds for action. And then he says, and set your hope upon Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And this, of course, we're going to do. And then he says, be holy because God is holy. And that holy is not some snotty nose looking down and judging others like as if somehow we're way better than others. Not at all. No, no, the holiness is that we're going to learn how we live in relationship with a holy God so that people, when they look at our lives, they might catch a glimpse of what that holy God is like and, and see in us the kind of freedom and hope that comes from being in a relationship with Him and having our world ordered the way that God wants to order our world. That's what this series is going to be all about. So next week, we're going to cover chapters 1 to 7, which is all about the sacrifices that are necessary for a sinful and defiled people to be in an ongoing relationship with a holy God. And then the week after that, we're going to cover chapters 8 and 10, which is all about the priests. And again, remember, the priests, God's call on us is that we're all priests in the sense that we show that we mediate God, that we, that we become this place for people to see who God is. And then the, the week after that, chapters 11 to 16 is going to be all about purity. We're going to be talking about all that, that where it talks about clean and unclean and, and you know, mold. And I mean, what all, what's all that about? And how does it apply in our world today? And you'll be amazed at what it means for us in this day. And then in the last week, we're going to cover chapters 17 to 27, which is all about the holiness of God in every aspect of our lives, what it looks like and what it means for us as we follow after him. So we're going to cruise through Leviticus at a fairly high level, and yet it's going to be the kind of study that helps us see and understand how to live in this life here now today. So I want to join, invite you to join us. Come regularly over these next four weeks, and let's discover what it says to us. All right, would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Well, God, we thank you that your word is true, all of it, everything from the first word in Genesis to the last word in Revelation. And even the book of Leviticus, which often to us seems so foreign and so distant and so unrelated, God, when we, when we, when we look at it, when we begin to, to dig deep into it, we see that it is so relevant yet for today, that it teaches us who you are. God, it teaches us who we are. And it shows us a lot, a great deal about how it is that you call us to live in this world around us. So God, open our eyes to see and open our, our heart to hear what it is that you have to say to us in these days through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to end by, by blessing you, by giving you this benediction. It's from the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, of course, is written by the Apostle John. He has this incredible vision of the future, and he's taken up into heaven. And, and at one point, he has this, this vision of what's happening around the throne room of God. And, and he writes this. He says, after this, I looked and behold, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, before Jesus. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God, saying, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We serve and worship holy and awesome God. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you next week.